Guys, hey, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but something incredible happened to me this morning, and I just need to tell you about it, and I, I might need your help, okay? So I was, I was sitting out on this little porch thing with my wife this morning, and we were drinking coffee, and I kid you not, out, I still can't believe it, out in the forest, I, I hear this. And, and I don't go, oh, that's beautiful. I go, what? Someone stole my flute. Like, I'm, I'm like stressed, like, oh my goodness. So I go and look in my backpack and I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, my, it's right here. I have my flute. And then in the forest, in the forest, I hear this again. What? And so for real, for real, you guys, I, you, who heard it? God, that wasn't me. There's a mystery flute in the forest, and it talked to me. I got my flute, and I was like, and three seconds later, it goes, and we were having this, like, musical conversation. My, my mind was blown. Like, but this is the point, you guys. There, there's a mystery flute source in the Hume-like forest, and I, for one, would like to know what it is. So if, if you find yourself in the forest and you hear a flute, actually, I don't know, maybe it's like a bad person and a predator. If you can stay away and find out what it is, I want information, okay? I want to know what this is. <laughs> oh. Guys, I, I'm sorry. I... I know that was the most distracting way to start what we're talking about tonight, but I had to tell you, okay? Um, well, hey, as we get into the Bible tonight, I want to ask you to be careful. Because what we're going to see, for real, is what Jesus looked like. What the things that Jesus said, the miracles that Jesus did, and what they mean. And if you're not careful, we can get lulled into this thing where what sounds like we're hearing is this really entertaining fairy tale. And you can go, oh, good story, good myth. But remember, this week, the thing that we're interested in is truth. Every night that you and I have got together, we've established truth after truth. Like the true God, who we proved truly exists and is the source of all truth, gave us his word that is trustworthy and true. And now the point at, that we've arrived at in John is to understand why does God care so much that we have his truth? It's not just because he values truth, the concept itself, but you may not know this, the entire Bible points to the truth of Jesus. The reason God puts this in front of you is because, remember we've said this before, he wants you to understand him. He wants you to know him, the good, true God of grace and truth. He wants to be known by you, and he does that primarily through putting the person of Jesus in front of you. In John chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So God wants you to have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is because Jesus is the primary way that he shows us what God's like, what God's heart is like, what you can expect from him in a relationship. And so when we read this, don't hear fairy tale, hear truth round three, okay? And, and 
even historically speaking, Jesus is a well-established, proven person to have lived 2,022 years ago, okay? So uh, we are going to start tonight in John chapter 4. You can go ahead and start turning there. And I don't just want to skip from where we've been in chapter 1 to chapter 4. I want to kind of catch you up, okay? So at this point, we've seen God say, yeah, when you get to chapter 4, you can go, yay, yay. Oh, look at you, you Bible scholars. Wow. This is, this is turned into like Last of the Mohicans war cry, and I kind of like it. Okay, okay. So remember, as you turn, remember, we have established that the all-powerful God of the universe, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And there was so much anticipation for what was coming. Remember, people are freaking out. And they're like, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's here. And now we get to see who the one, just like we saw who John the Baptist was, the one paving the way for him, now we get to see who Jesus the one is, what God is like. And in John chapter 2, we're going to see one of his first miracles where, where Jesus is uh, at this wedding festival with his mom. And his mom is so excited, Mary, and, and she probably knows the bride and groom. And a wedding back then was this huge, like, week-long festival. And just about the whole town came out. And they were just celebrating the life of these two young people in love and the life that they were going to have together. And the Bible says that they, they run out of wine, which was like a staple for how they were celebrating together. And Jesus' mom comes to him, and she's like, Jesus, honey, could you, could you just help them out and, and give them some more wine so this party doesn't have to be killed like on day three that's supposed to go to day seven so they're celebrating the moment of their marriage doesn't have to turn into an embarrassment for them that the whole city's going to remember forever. And Jesus is like, Mom. He's like, Mom, that's not, that's not really what I'm here for. Come on. And his mom probably, has your mom ever done this? Where they're like, you get the big mom eyes and she's like, please. Yeah? Say yes if your mom has done that. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. And, and so Jesus, he obeys his mama, and he goes, okay, mom, you got it. And 180 gallons of water turn into wine, and the party continues, and the couple is celebrated, and the town has a great time, and that moment isn't ruined and remembered by sadness and disappointment and, oh, well, remember what happened on their wedding day. And it's, it's kind of a strange miracle, but, but there's a reason it's in the Bible, right? Remember, we're reading these things simply to understand what is God like. Why is this one in the Bible? Simply so that we can know God loves people. God cares about people. God is, is good, and he gives good gifts, right? There's going to be a moment in John chapter 3, again, before we get to where we're going to read tonight, where Jesus interacts with this super sophisticated, uppity-up religious guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to him, and he's basically like, Oh, Jesus, you, you probably know that as you are a huge deal, I'm a huge deal. And just like you know a lot about God and seem like you're pretty close to the big guy, I am also really close to the big guy. We're both popular, well-respected. You seem well-educated, just like me. We're the same. And this incredible legacy life that I, Nicodemus, am building, you are so lucky for me to include you in the life that I'm building. And Jesus kind of blows his mind. He goes, whoa, 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 Nicodemus, that's, that's not why I'm here. That's not how this works. Listen, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, he basically lays it out through this analogy of childbirth. And he goes, Nicodemus, to have a relationship with me, 
You don't show up and go, we're the same, buddy, buddy, look, you can be a part of the life I'm building. You have to hit the reset button. You basically have to abandon the entire life that you built. It's, it's like the equivalent of being born again. Like that's how much of a new person you are. You're not your old person. You're not your old ways. You're not your old interests. You hit the reset button when you follow me. I'm, I'm not a little pal to be added to the life that you're building conveniently. And Nicodemus's mind, this astute religious leader is just blown. He's like, what? Nicodemus, in fact, is the one that Jesus will say those famous words in John chapter 3, verse 16 to. He's speaking to Nicodemus when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Were some of you guys reciting it from memory? Yeah. Guys, what? I just got the tingles. Ten respect points. Well done. And ultimately, that will bring us to John chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 4. Here's what it says. <clears throat> now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Here's, here's, this is a little thing, but again, all we're interested in is these stories and these miracles and this reaction is learning. What is God like? Jesus is our accurate perspective of the character of God. Well, Jesus is fully man and fully God, and it's worth knowing in this moment, it's the sixth hour, right? It's noon. He's in Israel. This is like, like picture summertime in Fresno. Do you guys know what summertime in Fresno is like? At noon when the sun's right smack dab in the center of the sky? It doesn't matter how many layers of antiperspirant deodorant you put on, which they didn't have back then, you have giant sweat rings right here, right? So Jesus being fully man, just, this is just a humanity moment. He's tired from walking. He's sweating from sitting in the sun. He sees a well and he's like, oh, I'm pooped. I need to sit by this. There's going to be water in there. This is good. Game on. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, this won't seem like a big deal, but this is a big deal. Will you give me a drink? Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, she's surprised. You, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. You guys have been crushing it with processing the nerd stuff. Can I give you a little bit more nerd stuff tonight? Okay. Well, this is kind of, I'm not talking about Jewish people today, but back then, Jews were racist. Can I give you some history? We're not, we're not bashing on anybody, but this is how it was historically. Listen, Samaria was a Jewish town. And there was a point in history where the Babylonians came and conquered them. And they took all of the Jews who lived there, who were capable of working, right, of doing tasks, forced labor for the Babylonians. They took all of them captive out of Samaria. All of them except the ones who were old, who were diseased, who had something wrong with them, who couldn't work, those who were less than the outcasts. So the only people left in Samaria at this time, I mean, in a very real way, have something wrong with them, right? And they've changed some of the religious things that the Jews used to do. They don't do it that way anymore. And so people who were Jews looked at Samaria and they were like, that's, that's where all the people that nobody wants to hang out with are. That's, that's where the people who are beneath us are. I mean, it was culturally custom and not frowned upon for Jews to spit on Samaritans. Like they despised them. They hated them. They were just lower class than Jews, right? 
Jesus is a Jew and he's interacting with the Samaritan woman. More than that, someone in Jesus' position, a teacher, a rabbi of the Jews, would never associate with a woman, let alone even speak to, address, give eye contact to a woman. And this wasn't just a Jewish thing. People in that day in general were kind of sexist. They viewed women as less than, not even people to be equal to men. Yeah, you can boo that. Boo! (laughs) And so now think about this lady She sees this Jewish teacher rabbi coming, and she's anticipating, here comes a racist, sexist man. And instead, Jesus very kindly shows up, and he blows all these stereotypes, all these rules, all these problems out of the water, and he he gives her the time of day. And it surprises her. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. He's talking about himself. And this is, it's, he's speaking in a metaphor, but he's confusing this lady. And she's trying to f- figure out what Jesus is all about. Look at verse 7. She says, sir, you, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So Jesus is about to blow her mind with what he's teaching. And we'll see that. But, but she's not quite catching on, right? She's like, there's a well with water in it. And I don't, you're saying you can get me water, but like, you don't have a bucket. This well is super deep. You don't have a rope to drop your bucket down there. Like, do you know of some secret spring somewhere else? You're, like, your water's living and somehow superior. Like, it has electrolytes in it and it tastes better. Like, you have Gatorade and I just have tap water. Like, what is going on? She might be asking these questions to feel them out and see, like, is, this a, is he breaking these social rules because he's a crazy guy? You know what I mean? Like, I was in L.A. one time, and I was walking into a McDonald's, and this guy was outside not very, wearing ma- very many clothes, and he goes, I'm the Lord, and then he hissed at me. <sighs> like, maybe she thinks that's the kind of encounter that she's having, right? And she's trying to test this out. I bet in her mind, she's about to go, okay, I, nothing you're saying makes sense. You, mm-mm, mm-mm. But that's not going to be what happens. Her interaction with Jesus will legitimately blow her mind. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, right, from this well that they're next to, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And it's at this point that I just have to tell you, I absolutely love this analogy that Jesus is giving. He's kind of referencing what we were talking about last night. Remember we said the Bible is the truth in a world of lies. The world is peddling us lies where nothing satisfies us, even though it says being popular will make you content, being impressive will make you happy, getting the attention of other people will be the thing that satisfies you. And yet me, maybe like you, we just perpetually find ourselves unsatisfied or thirsty afterwards. Jesus is addressing that problem, and he goes, I, God, am the only thing that will quench the thirst of your soul. I am the only place that you will find satisfaction. You won't find it in the applause of other people or the impressive accomplishments that you make. I am where the thirst of your soul is quenched. I have a a mentor who's amazing, and he said something that I'll never forget. He basically said, the world who doesn't know Jesus wakes up empty every day. They wake up loveless every day. And they have to go out into the world thirsty to get love. 
They have to impress people because they need to get love from them because they're empty. They have to accomplish something and build wealth or do something that's impressive because they use that to get love because they're empty, because they're thirsty. But he said, as Christians, what Jesus gives us, this living water, this spring that wells up in us, the abundant gift of Jesus is that we get to wake up every day, not empty, but full of his love. And we go out and instead of living for love, we get to live from love. Our hearts, he designed us to have our thirst quenched by him. And when we remain in him, when we trust him, when we love him, he fills our hearts with his love. And I no longer need to worry about impressing you or being the best or how am I doing. Everything I need, I have access to in Jesus. He's the living water. He's the satisfaction of my soul. There's, there's a, again, and there's a, a nerd thing. It's like a old school, this is what you exist for, a statement of faith, the Westminster Catechism of Faith that says, the chief end of man, the main purpose of you and me is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when we do that, we experience a living water overflowing in our heart like a spring. And the woman goes, that sounds nice, I'll have that. And he goes in verse 16, he goes, go call your husband and then come back. And she goes, I don't have a husband. And this is where Jesus blows her mind the most. Listen, whoa, listen to this. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. <gasps> like if I were the lady, I'd be going, uh, what? She goes, sir, uh, I can see that you're a prophet. And then she totally changes the subject to some obscure theological question. Like it seems to me like she's so embarrassed because with like laser eyes, somehow he has seen into the very deepest core of who she is. He knows the most embarrassing, worst parts of who she is and has just flagrantly exposed them. And she's like, <laughs> probably super, super embarrassed. Have you guys ever felt embarrassed? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever felt embarrassed and then someone found out about your embarrassing thing? Guys, when I was in elementary school, I had a friend who was also my next door neighbor his older brother was out of town and just got this like huge California King bed, new mattress. He had these sweet video games in his room. And so we stayed up late. We had pizza. We had snacks. We're playing video games in his brother's room. And then, you know, we're little kids and this bed is huge. And so he sleeps way over here on this California King. And I sleep way over here on the California King and we go to sleep. And that night I get up to go to the bathroom. And then I wake up and realize it was a dream. I did not get up. I actually just wet the bed on my friend's older brother's California King mattress. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm over here. And he's over here. I wet the bed so much that it went, ooh, a boop, all the way to him. And so I get up. I go to the bathroom. I clean myself off. And I, I lay on the ground in the room. <laughs> And I fall asleep, and you know, I'm asleep, so I forget about it. And when I wake up, I go, <gasps> I remember what happened last night. Oh my goodness, my friend is sleeping in my pee. <laughs> and so instead of staying, hanging out, playing more video games, having breakfast at his house, I go, oh, I gotta go back to my house and do chores. And so I run out the front door, immediately next door to my house, into the front. Guys, his mom is so mad, because this is a brand new, awesome, huge, big kid mattress, right? She pulls it out front on the porch so that it can dry in the sunlight. My friend Jason thought 
that he was the one that went to bed and he got in trouble from his mom and I'm the one that know I have sinned, right? And eventually, Jason found out. And I was like, no. I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed, right? But this lady, she's not just embarrassed because of something unfortunate that happened to her. She's embarrassed because her sin, her true shame has just been exposed. Jesus sees everything about her and she's blown away. She knows there's no way that he could know this. Maybe he's some sort of prophet. And actually we start to understand why this lady is getting water at noon in the hottest part of the day instead of what ladies would normally do is they would go in the morning when it's cool. They would go in a group with other ladies and have banter and chit chat, right? Because in a group they were safe, they could hang out, they could help each other. This lady is completely alone. Jesus exposes her embarrassment and her shame. She's probably burned a ton of bridges relationally. She's had five husbands, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. Now she's with some guy that she's not even married to. People look at her and they judge her. People don't give her the time of day. People don't make eye contact with her. People that she should be associating with don't want anything to do with her. She's an outcast Samaritan. She's an outcast woman. She's an outcast sinner. She's lonely. She should be viewed as nothing. She for sure feels like nothing. And Jesus shows up to her, and he gives her his time and his attention and his care. And in verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. Listen to this, verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This woman the lowest of the lowest of the lowest, she's the one that God, the Logos, the God of the universe, come in the flesh to the world to be with us, to show his truth, to show us what he's like. He shows up to the lowest woman and goes, I'm going to entrust you with the knowledge, maybe before almost everyone else, that I am the Messiah. I am God. He reveals himself to her. And guys, what you need to learn from this story about the character of God, this miracle of him seeing into this woman's heart, is that God knows everything about you. He knows all of your sin. He knows the worst parts of you. And like this woman, he wants you to understand you're safe with me. I give you my time. I give you my attention. I give you my care. You're valuable to me. I love you. This is the heart and the character of God that he wants you to know and understand through Jesus. Let's move on to another miracle. Here we go. Are you ready? If you're ready, say, what a Oh, you guys are so good. Okay. The last chunk of chapter four, we see something that we saw in the skit this morning. Do you remember when, I think his name was Max, and his puppy died? Do you remember that? If you remember that, say, yep. Well, that also is from the Bible. It's in this last chunk of John chapter four, verse 46. And, and we're not going to read it, but I just want you again to see what God is like through the person of Jesus. Why does Jesus heal this man's dead son? Well, how do you think that dad felt? He was probably absolutely heartbroken, devastated, deep, deep sorrow. Like his life is over. He cannot believe that his son is dead. And, and from this, you simply need to know that the heart of God, what God is like is he cares. He knows and he cares when you are heartbroken, when you're saddened, when you feel deep sorrow. He knows and he sympathizes with you. The other thing, though, that this shows about Jesus 
is that he fully has power over life and death. I mean, he literally brings a dead person back to life. Do you think this dad had any doubt that Jesus is the one and only, the true son of the living God, God in full, fully man and fully God? Do you think he doubted that? It was obvious to this dad, right? Look at John chapter five. Sometime later, I'm gonna skip to verse two. It says, now there in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, to lay down, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid, has been in their condition for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition, condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Listen to what he says in verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water's stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. See, all these people believed that this, this natural spring, that when it would bubble, maybe it was miraculous, I don't know, but when it would bubble, they believed that the first person that would get in there would be supernaturally healed of whatever ailed them, whatever disability they had, whatever disease they had. If they got in there first, they'd be healed for 38 years. This guy, unable to walk, has been sitting there going, Maybe I'll make it in today. But every time he tried to go in, no one would help him, and someone would cut in front of him. And for 38 years, he has sat there in the same condition. How do you think he felt? He was probably absolutely defeated, deflated, discouraged, hopeless. And so Jesus, as our picture of God, what God is like, shows up to the hopeless. Look at what he does in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He brings hope to the hopeless. God heals those who need healing. He loves and he cares. Again, at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. And this is where we encounter a moment of controversy. <laughs> it's so dumb. It says, the day on which this took place, I'm reading in my nerd voice because nerds are the ones who are having an issue here. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. The religious leaders of the time see this man who has been disabled for 38 years and a miracle has happened and they don't empathize with him. They don't get excited for him. They don't go, oh my goodness, that's so amazing. We're happy for you. They go, um, you broke our church rules. What? They're, and these, weren't, these were not even rules of God. These were extra rules that the religious leaders made at the time. They're like, you know what? We have this one day a week where we rest and you're not allowed to do work. And technically, you picking up your mat like this, that's work. You broke the rules. And he's like, guys, I could have walked for 38 years. I'm healed. This is the best. What is wrong with you, right? And they're, and they're so upset that Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. In verse 16, it says this. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And what I want you to see here is the crazy claims that he makes to them. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Have you ever heard someone say like, you know what, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus, Jesus actually, he had power. I believe that he like healed and stuff, but he never claimed to be God. Have you ever heard someone say that? I want to completely dispel that for you right now. These guys are so upset at him for claiming to be God that they want to kill him. Do you think they understood that Jesus claimed to be God? Just like the dad of that dead son? Absolutely they did. And this is... 
This is what Jesus says to them to make his own situation worse and be abundantly clear. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life, me, to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Oh my gosh. If you were a religious leader at this time, you'd be so upset that you'd have all this pressure in your head that your blood vessels would be sticking out and one of them would probably pop. You know what I mean? Like, what did you just say? Jesus is, is not even claiming just to be equal with God. He's saying, God the Father thinks so highly of me that God the Father chooses not to judge. When the world is over, when everyone has to give an account for their life, God the Father looks at me, this part of the Trinity, of the all-powerful, all-knowing God, and he says, Jesus... Why don't you be the one who judges? God the Father won't even enact that part of his godliness. He's going to allow Jesus to do it. And he says, if you don't honor me, this aspect of God, then you dishonor the Father. He's not just claiming to be God. He's saying, I am so part of the Trinity. I am so essential to what the nature and the understanding of God is. The judgment comes from me and no other part of the Trinity. If you don't honor me, you dishonor God the Father. And they're like, you, you can't say it much clearer. Jesus is saying, I am God. In verse 28, he says, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. He's talking about his own voice. And come out at the end of the world. Everyone dead in graveyards. I am so powerful. Remember, we're talking about Logos, God. The Jews understood that the, the, the creative power of God was his speech. He's saying, I, Jesus, am going to go, wake up. And every dead person in every grave will go, Oh, he's fully claiming to be God. Wow. I am sorry for tempting you to make zombie noises, but follow with me. All right. Can I give you one more? We're in John chapter six. Here we go. John chapter six. Verse one, it says sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 2, And a crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And look at, look at verse 5. Jesus is going to have this conversation with one of his disciples, with Philip, and it's leading. I, I, in everything we're covering tonight, you guys, I think everything about this miracle is hilarious. And it has a purpose, and it's deeply significant, but just follow with me, okay? Verse 5, When Jesus looked up and saw the crowd coming to him, he said to Philip, Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. So he's like, listen, Philly boy, we, there's like 5,000 people out there. They're coming over here. They've been listening to me teaching. They're going to be here for a while. They're going to get hungry. Uh, we should probably have a plan. What are we going to do? And, and I am paraphrasing, but basically Philip looks around, and he's trying to solve the problem, and he's like, uh, there's no Albertsons here. Uh, ooh, I don't know. And even if there was an Albertsons here, they're not going to have enough bread to feed 5,000 people at once. And even if they did have enough bread to feed 5,000 people at once, in verse 7, Philip answered, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each person to have one bite. So he's like, there's no place here that has it. Even if there was, we couldn't afford it. There's, there's no way to feed these people. And Jesus is like, that's right. I just wanted you to know so I can blow your mind with the miracle I'm about to do. So Philip, you fully understand that the task set before us is impossible. You could call it a mission impossible. 
<laughs> Jesus is establishing there is no humanly way to solve this problem. I want you to clearly see the miracle that I'm doing. And in verse 8, it says another of his disciples, Andrew, spoke up and he goes, Hey, uh, Jesus, here's a boy and he has five small barley loaves and two fish. And guys, I have to tell you, I'm so sassy that if I was a disciple at this point, I would have made fun of Andrew and been like, Okay, buddy, <laughs> this little kid's box lunch is going to feed five people. Hmm, do the math. So we still have to feed 4,995 more. Good start, Andrew, you dummy. It's not enough. It's very clearly not enough. But look at what Jesus says in verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. So they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Guys, I wish I was there. I wish I could see how Jesus did this. Like, right, he doesn't have pockets big enough to carry around 5,000 little lunches for people, right? They'd be dragging on the ground. He'd be like, even that would be a miracle because he'd be so strong, you know? Like, like, try to figure out what this would be. Like, say he has a loaf of bread in this hand and a fish, and he's like, he rips off a fish, like, body and hands it to someone. And then the body grows back out of the fish head, like, and then he rips that off and hands it to the next person. Like, I don't know. Or the bread, like, he's like pulling it out of his sleeve. Whoop, whoop, whoop. I don't know. It doesn't make sense because it's a miracle. He does something that was not humanly possible. He feeds 5,000 people. And this is what we learn. It's not just, it's not just, cool, he did a miracle and you've probably heard it before. Again, our interest is to learn what is true about who God is, about his character. He gave these people as much as they wanted. That means someone could have been sitting there on the grass, and Jesus walks over, and he hands them a fish and a piece of bread, and he goes, do you want any more than that? And they're like, oh, I, I haven't eaten in like two days. Sure. And he rips off some fish and some bread again, and he hands them more. And the, the person's like, actually, my... My brother and my sister are coming. Can I get some for them? And he's like, oh, yeah, here you go. He just keeps giving to them, right? And then it doesn't just say as much as they wanted. It says beyond that, when they had all had enough to eat. Think about how you feel when you're full. You know, not just when you're full, but like on Thanksgiving, when you're full and then you eat like the equivalent of another meal. And you're like, oh. And then your grandma brings out pumpkin pie and you're like, it's an obligation. I have to. And you eat it. And then you go into a food coma and you're just laying there like, not the point where it hurts, but you're like, this is the best. And then you just take a nap and the Super Bowl's on and life is the best. You know what I'm saying? Do you know that feeling? Here's what this reveals about the character and the heart of God. God, this, this God who is not content for you to know that he's all powerful and be off distance somewhere and for you to fear him and go, ooh, ooh. That God wanted to reveal to you that he's a generous God that he's a giving God, that he gives more than what you and I need, even more than what you and I want. He's more than enough. He's sufficient. He's generous and he's giving. This is the heart and character of our God who reveals himself and the truth of him in Jesus. And the bread story is not over. We get this like little commercial where they're done that day. The people are sitting on the grass. They eat their meal and Jesus and the disciples leave. And the disciples get in a boat and they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, okay? 
Jesus does not, though. And it literally lays it out. It says that the disciples got like three, <laughs> for real, it says three, maybe three and a half miles into the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is like, you know how when you walk in a shallow puddle? Just walking across the top of the, of the water, and you're like, okay, I've heard this before. I wonder if you've heard this before. He gets into their boat. Look at this. <laughs> Chapter 6, verse 21. Then when they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. What? They're like in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus gets in, the boat does a wheelie, and they're there. Like, that's crazy. You know what this reveals about the heart and character of God? He's just awesome. Like, why is that in the Bible? Because he knew that all of us would go, ooh, that's cool. And then the commercial's over, and guess what? We're back to the bread story. This is, this is the part that becomes my favorite, okay? <laughs> Verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized only one boat is there. Jesus Jesus isn't here. In verse 24, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Jesus answered them in verse 26, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Guys, this is what's happening. The bread that Jesus gave them was so good that they're like, we don't care if we have to go to the other side of the lake. We are getting more of that bread. It was so good. Like, I don't know what you would say is the best bread. Maybe it's like Dave's Killer Bread or whatever. But I'm going to tell you you're wrong because the best bread is Olive Garden Unlimited Breadsticks. Okay? Who's with me? <laughs> I bet Olive Garden got that idea from Jesus. Okay? They're like... Look at the way that these people drooled over the bread and he gave them more and more and he gave them until they had fill. We are going to model our perfect restaurant Olive Garden after the generous heart of Jesus. I, that's probably not true, but <laughs> Olive Garden is my favorite restaurant. But, but for real, for real. I'm not just being sassy. This is what Jesus is saying. He's like, listen, you're not interested in the truth of my teaching and learning what God is like, you for real just thought that bread was so good that you wanted more. And the people are like, um, no, 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 no. Verse 28, <laughs> they say, no, what must, what must we do to the works God requires? They're pretending. For real, they're pretending to have this spiritual conversation with them. And then Jesus interacts back with them and they say this. Listen to this. <laughs> what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you. What will you do? I mean, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're like, oh yeah, we'll talk with you about the Bible. The Bible says bread. Give us more bread. And, and Jesus is like, my words are, I'm, I'm not, I didn't come to give you a sack lunch. I'm trying to communicate something to you. And he, he goes back into teaching in verse 33. He goes, no, guys, listen, listen. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's like, well, I'm giving you another analogy. I'm the bread of life. The way the bread satisfies you and nourishes you, I'm God. I want to teach you what God is like. God wants to satisfy you and nourish you spiritually. He wants to be your everything. And the people are like, sweet, sounds good. Give us that bread. 
For real, look at it in verse 34. From now on, give us that bread. And I imagine Jesus getting stern in verse 35 because it says he declared. <laughs> no, listen. I, I am the bread of life, you guys. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that day. And in verse 41, it says that this, the Jews began to grumble about him. And they're like, oh, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus goes, stop grumbling among yourselves. And in verse 52, it says the Jews begin to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they don't understand the analogy. All they want is bread. They're getting mad because they're not getting bread. And they're like, Jesus is saying he's the bread of life? Jesus is saying, we, what, we're supposed to eat his skin, his body? This, what? They're not tracking. And these are the last couple of verses we're going to read you guys. Listen to this. Listen to this. Verse 60 says, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And in verse, I'm sorry, verse 60. And then in verse 66, it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Some of Jesus' own disciples said, I, I don't know that I'm signed up for that. I, I am not following you anymore, Jesus. And the point for us, Jesus is, is separating, guys. He's drawing a line. He's saying, look, some of you are interested in God and religion for his stuff. You just want the bread. You just want the free meal. Think about that to us today. You will have a hard time with an accurate view of God if you only are a Christian because you want his stuff. If you're only here because you want the forgiveness of your sins and you don't want to deal with guilt anymore and you heard that heaven sounds awesome, hear this. You just want God's stuff. Because in that list, I didn't say anything about being with God. You're not interested in him. You're interested in his stuff. And what Jesus has told to these people is, that's not God. That's not what I'm about. That's not the offer he makes to you. That's not the relationship that I want. I didn't show up to be a cosmic genie to go, here you go, problem fixed, your self-esteem's better, here you go. Those are good byproducts of a healthy relationship with Jesus. But the reason you follow God, this is true of his character and who he is, is because he wants you to understand him and be with him. He wants to be with you. Think about my two sons. If every single one of my interactions with my two sons were going through the grocery store and they're like, Dad, give me this candy. Dad, I want candy. Dad, I was good today. I should get candy today. Give me candy. Give me candy. You know what I think? I don't even know what our relationship is. Like, you just want stuff from me. But guys, my youngest son said something this morning that just completely softened my heart. He goes, Dad, we're going to go fishing. Can you come? And you know why I love that so much? It was not just because I was wanted in general. It's because what my son was saying was, I don't just want stuff from you. Dad, I don't just interact with you because you get a paycheck and then I get stuff. <laughs> my son in his little heart was saying, Dad, I'm interested in this relationship because I want to be with you because I love you. And God puts himself out there in full truth. Jesus, who sacrificially loves us, and he says, I want to fill your heart with my love. I want to be the spring that overflows with living water. I want to be the bread of life to you, but I don't want you to be in it for the perks. I want you to be in it for a relationship with me. And some of the people heard that, and they went, I just want his stuff. I'm out. And you might have to decide and realize that's not an option. 
Jesus didn't come to give you good stuff. He didn't come to be a good teacher, to give you advice like Nicodemus, that then you could show up and go, you know what, I'll take some of this. I'm building my life. Maybe I'll listen to Jesus. Maybe I won't. Guys, Jesus was not a good teacher. Jesus clarified to every single person that we looked at tonight, I am fully God. And so for you, you like these people have to decide what you do with Jesus. He is either fully God to you and you reset your life like what Jesus told Nicodemus. You abandon your old life and you follow him all the way or he is nothing to you and you reject him completely. There is no middle ground. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a consultant. He's not just someone who you can take or leave their advice. He's fully God who you submit your full life to as a Lord and Savior or you abandon him entirely. You, like these people who heard a hard teaching, will have to decide, what do you do with Jesus? There's not three options. You surrender to him as king, or you abandon him as unworthy. He is not something in the middle. Let me pray. God, we love you. And we thank you that you invite us to understand you in truth, that you don't invite us to blind faith, God, that you don't invite us to submit our lives on feelings alone. God, we thank you that we can understand that you are true and that in your true character that you're good and you're gracious and that you want to be known and understood by us. And God, I pray for every single student in here that you would give them clarity, that you would soften their hearts, that you would make them open to what it is that you want them to understand this week and you would get glory what they do in response. We love you and we give you this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen.